And we are starting a brand new series called Summer of Love. It is going to get groovy, people. It's a whole series we're doing all summer long, and it's uh, looking, uh, taking a deep dive into the book of 1 John. Now, 1 John is not a long book. It's only about five chapters long, but we're going to spend the whole summer just diving into it. But here's the really cool part. Here's the part that's going to get you excited, is you're not going to hear just from me. Uh, We are going to have lots of different voices and perspectives coming in, helping me out. Each Sunday might be somebody different, taking different passages of this book, looking at it from all kinds of different angles. And I'm just really excited about what this uh, series is going to minister to us and say to us uh, and about getting to hear from lots of different people in our church because we've got a lot of wise teachers in this church. You know that, right? So we're going to get to hear uh, from uh, next, next week, we're going to hear from Miss Debbie Fink. So that's going to be great. Uh, we'll be hearing from uh, Derek Tice, who just taught last week a, in a brilliant message. Uh, my wife is going to be speaking, lots of other people too. And so it's kind of like, you ever watch Top Chef? And like, it's one dish, but like a lot of different chefs get to like put their take on it right? Are you a cooking show nerd like me? No? Okay. It's going to be delicious. Don't just trust me. So we're excited about it. I hope you're excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. This morning I have a bit of heavy lifting to do because I want to, uh, uh, and uh, and quickly, because I want to introduce this book, which is actually a letter written to the early church. And I want to dive right into the first chapter so we can just hit the ground running and set the stage for all the delicious courses coming your way over the next many weeks. So what is this letter? Where does it come from? Why is it so important to us? Who cares about 1 John? What what is the big deal? First fact of gigantic importance uh, is that this letter is the first of three letters written by John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in your Bible, right towards the end, over there, you know, towards the end of the New Testament. And something else that is, if, it, if you're like me, you grew up a little confused, uh, when, if, or especially if you're new to the Bible, is that 1st John is not the first John in the Bible right? There's a whole nother John that comes first, uh, and it's also called John, and uh, it comes way earlier in the way that our uh, English Bibles are ordered, and it's the book that First John is often confused with, um, and that's, of course, the Gospel of John, the biography of Jesus. So, actually, the Gospel of John comes first. First John comes second. Second John comes third, and third John comes fourth, right? It's kind of like when you go to Starbucks for the first time and you're like, I want a large coffee and you see grande and you're like, I'll take that grande, the large. And you're like, no, grande's medium. You're like, but grande means big. In any language, like 12 different languages, grande means big. And you're like, no. And you're like, okay, well, how about the tall? We're like, the tall small. That's the smallest one. But tall also means big. And it's their smallest size. You're like, well, what's a large? And they tell you venti, which means 20. I think Starbucks is messing with us, right? So that's kind of the way John's, the Johns are. Anyway, but here's what we all want to remember as we study the letter of 1 John. Important thing to remember, 1 John is written by the same author as the Gospel of John, of John 3.16. That's, that's John, the same guy. And scholars for, for thousands of years have noted how these two, uh, the Gospel of John and the letters of John, they share the same very unique grammar, phraseology, the same themes. Uh, there's, there's really no question about them being written by the same guy. And so while the Gospel of John is, of course, the biography of Jesus, and it describes the life of Jesus, the letters of John describe life for followers of Jesus. So these letters are important to us. And 
And you're going to notice throughout this series, probably with all these different speakers going to be speaking to you, there'll be a lot of times you'll notice we'll be referring over to the gospel of John quite a bit because John, when he wrote these letters, he would have assumed these communities that he was writing to would have probably already have read his gospel, his biography of Jesus. And so he uses a lot of similar language. By the way, if you want to really impress your, your friends, which I know is important to so many of you, to impress your friends at the next dinner party, uh, the, the, the three letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation, which was also written by John, together they're known as the Johannine Corpus. That's a lot of fun to say, and it'll make you look really smart right? The Johannine Corpus is the body of work written by this guy, John. So if you're at a, you know, the dinner party and someone is like, that's a really impressive collection of garden gnomes you have in your front yard, you can be like, yes, it is. But it's not as impressive as the Johannine Corpus. And I just encourage you to try that out. So, all right. Second thing you're going to notice about uh, the letter of John, uh, the letter of First John, no matter what we're talking about, and he talks about a lot of different themes, um, but it always seems to come back to this overarching theme of love, hence the title of our series. It's very relational. John is very relational. You know, he says in, in the gospel, he calls himself the, the disciple that Jesus loved. So John's like all about the love. He's the poet of the disciples, right? He, he's, just, ooh, he's just all co cozy and cuddly. So 1 John is going to always come back to this idea of love. It's very relational. And so without further ado, let's jump into the passage. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And by the way, I'm going to be reading out of the RSV uh, today because we're just not playing games, okay? So, and... If you're a seminary student, RSV means you mean business, okay. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. <gasps> Take a breath. Those are the introductory words of 1 John to his community. Now, in the actual Greek, the reason why I read it so fast is this is one long run-on sentence. It is. In the original Greek, these first three verses are actually one long sentence with no breaks. The verb doesn't even occur until the verse 3 when it gets to we proclaim. Everything you learned in fourth grade grammar is just thrown out the window here, right? This, this big, long, some scholars have noted that when it comes to like, uh, uh, compared to like proper Greek, this is like a train wreck of words, right? That, that don't seem to belong to each other and verb tenses that don't fit. And so with this opening paragraph, what is happening? There is an urgency to it. It comes at us flying. It flies. All right, so let's say, let's say you're eating dinner. You're at home. Maybe it's a quiet evening, you're sitting with your special somebody there, and you're eating dinner, maybe there's a little candlelight going on, and um, let's say I am your neighbor, 
And we, I don't even knock when I come over because we're that, we're that close of friends, right? And so I come bounding in the door, bursting through right in the middle when you're about to take a bite. And I come bursting through and I'm like, oh my word, you won't believe what happened at the end of the street. I had my camera. I can't believe it. I'm so glad I was able to take a picture because I could not believe it. I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see it. But I got to touch it. I got to see it. You got to see it because the thing, and I hope my, I hope my camera is still charged because there was some film, but it, so you got to see it to believe it. Your first thought would be, we've got to start locking that front door. But your second thought would be, I've got to see what Scott's talking about, because this is something I must not be able to miss, right? If, if I came in with this urgent run-on sentence, your first thought would be, whatever Scott has experienced, this is huge. And so that's the way this letter begins. It's this urgent sort of what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have felt, we proclaim to you. One scholar uh, says this about the opening. Ken Barker says, this first paragraph could be described as the author's language of ecstasy. So this author has experienced something. This, he's had some sort of experience with, with the resurrected Christ here. And, and this letter just shoots out of the gate flying. It's urgent. It's passionate. It's ecstasy. It's we have seen what we have heard, what we've proclaimed, what we've witnessed what we have been a part of, we have got to tell you about. And that's, that's what we're going to be looking at. So that's how it starts. And then as we go along, it shifts gears, and we're going to read about light and darkness and sin and forgiveness. And John starts wading into something going on in his day. Most scholars believe that uh, one of the reasons for this letter is John is addressing some issues that are going, some controversies, that some heated debate that's happening already in the church, that there might have even been a, a part, a group that had split off from the main group. And so I want to tell you about a couple of these arguments real quick because they'll help make sense in the coming weeks of the whole book. First, something about the nature of Jesus was up for debate. So this is, you know, this is first century. I mean, this is, the church is brand new. And so they're trying to grapple, they're trying to make sense of what just happened? Who was this Jesus? You know, what was the nature of Jesus? And so the, his divinity and his humanity, they were arguing about that. How long was Jesus divine? Was he divine? Like, was he born divine the whole time he was on the earth? Or was he sort of born just human? And then at one point, God like sort of, you know, made him divine, uh, you know, at some, or, or was Jesus, was he divine from the beginning? But he was really just kind of like a spirit sort of floating around pretending to be human. That was a, one of the beliefs. Secondly, there was this sort of controversy going on around sin and salvation. The degree to which someone uh, was a sinner who continued to sin after they came to Christ. Were some people uh, totally free from sin? Is that even possible to be just free from sin? And then thirdly, there was, an, there was some issues going around about uh, your obligation to love your neighbor. That command from Jesus that he gave back in John's gospel uh, to love others, and just how obligated is a person to love their neighbor? A lot or a little? Uh, is it the highest command? How does it rank in the list of things we're supposed to do? And so whatever this was, there, there, were, there were these heated, passionate arguments happening about these issues to the point where most suggest that there was some sort of split that was already going on among the believers. Now, side note, in the first church, there were controversies. I know, it's hard for us to imagine this, but we have to put ourselves back a couple thousand years, just wrap your minds around what that would be like to be part of a church with controversies. Um, uh, now, 
seriously, this can be both disturbing, but it's also strangely comforting to me because that, that people of faith have been wrestling with some of the deepest mysteries of the faith for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, So this is how this letter begins. Now let me go back and highlight a few things from these three verses. Verse 1, John wants to start this whole thing off by making it really clear that what I am talking to you about is not something that we just read about it's not something that we just sat around over hot tea and like came up with some great ideas and philosophy about. This is something we have seen. It's something we have heard. It's something we have touched. Remember, John would have been there at Pentecost. He was an upper room guy. He's experienced this for himself. He has touched Jesus. So, so these are metaphors he's using of, of experience, direct experience. They're not abstract thoughts. In other words, we're telling you something that, that we've lived, we've known, we've experienced, we've gone through, and we want to proclaim this to you. And what is it that we have experienced? Well, we have come to proclaim to you the word of life. The word of life, which is another way of saying, like, the message of life. That word for word is logos. And, and it means, like, literally means like a proclamation, a divine announcement. The word. And this divine word is about life. So there's some kind of life that Jesus says is possible that, that we've experienced and we've got to tell you about. And what is it that, what is that life that John has, you know, barged into our dining room to tell us about? He says this, this life was made manifest. So really interesting there, real quick, uh, the, that word manifest, that phrase, it, it, it means to be revealed. In other words, it's not something that this life just got created, like it's just happened. It's not something that just popped into existence or it'll become real at some later point in time. It's something that has been here the whole time. It's available right now, but it's been hidden from us up till now, you know, like the sun at nighttime. It's, it's been there. The sun's there. The earth didn't swallow it. It's just you can't see it. And so what is this life? What's the nature of this life we're testifying to? It says the eternal life, which was with the Father. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. We're getting close to what I really want to look at today. I want to focus on eternal life. This is at the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning. It's our understanding of eternal life I want to dig into. Maybe it's, this, this could be one of the most misunderstood phrases in uh, the Christian tradition is eternal life. What is eternal life typically understood to be? If, if someone just says to you, eternal life, what's the first thing that pops in your head? Heaven, right? I heard heaven, yes, exactly. Eternal life is heaven. And well, that's true, eternal life is heaven. But the problem is we understand heaven as eternal, and then we assume eternal to be something related to time right? And so, therefore, that, so we think of heaven as as a place where once you die, you exist in this place where there's just this successive unfolding of events and a sequence of collection of minutes and hours and days and months that just keep going on and on and on without end. And so, we think about heaven. Well, what am I going to be doing in heaven a hundred years from now? Well, what about a thousand years? What about a million years from now? It starts to sound exhausting. You know, like, wow, I'm, I'm going to take a, I need to take a nap, I think, at some point, right, in heaven. And so, the problem is this is not how John and Jesus talk about eternal life. So, I want to focus on this word life for a minute. When we say the word life, 
We, we can mean a lot of different things. Um, in our English Bibles, life is used for a lot of different words. We have one word in English, and it's life. But the Greek distinguishes between different words that we just translate them all as life. John and Jesus make a distinction between two kinds of life. Super important. And this distinction becomes really crystal clear if we peek back at the Gospel of John. Let's look at how Jesus uh, talks about two types of life real quick. John, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is going to lay down his life for the sheep. The word life here that's translated from the Greek, it's the, it's the Greek word suke, or, or we would say psyche. Uh, in other scriptures, it's often translated as the word soul. But whenever John uses this word for psyche, this word psyche, it's always translated as life when, when it gets used because John is always referring to a very specific kind of life, which I'm going to unpack in a minute. Um, it's, and it's contrasted with a different kind of life. Two chapters later, we're going to see these two kinds of life here in, in John chapter 12. Jesus contrasts two kinds of life. He says, those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay, wow, what does that mean? So here we have three instances of the word life, and in our English Bibles, it's just three word, the three instances of life, and that's kind of baffling to us. But when we realize that in the Greek, there's two different words in play. So the first two times that he mentions life, it's the word psyche. So if you love your psyche, you'll lose it. If you hate your psyche, you'll gain. And then he uses a different kind of life for the third one, and that's zoe. Zoe and psyche two different kinds of life. And Jesus wants to, us to make a distinction between these. <clears throat> There's something about the psyche life that Jesus says, be careful how you relate to it. Don't get too caught up in it. Because if you do, you'll not only lose it, but you'll lose the other kind of life, and it's the more important life. But if you gain a little distance from, this, from the psyche, you will gain zoe. And I know this for, for some of us, this doesn't mean a whole lot right now, but hang with me. The difference between these two kinds of life is literally infinite. Okay, whenever John uses zoe, whenever it appears, it's almost always accompanied by another Greek word, and that is aeon. And that's the word we would translate as eternal, aeon. So let's touch on this word for a second because it's super weird too. Uh, we use eternal, like I said, to mean something that, that lasts forever in time, a succession of minutes and days and months and years and centuries. It's why our brains explode when we try to think of like, well, how far back does God go? You know, when my, my little daughter, when I first tried to explain how God's eternal, he doesn't have a beginning, he didn't get born. He was like, well, how, where did God come from? How, when did he start? You know, we, were, we can go back to the earliest thing your mind could possibly conceive of and then go infinitely further back. And so, you know, that's just really hard for us to do. Or when we think about living forever in heaven, because we still think about this idea of a succession of moments in time. But aeon is very interesting. It's a word used to describe things that exist outside of time, independent of time, something with no beginning and no end, like think of a circle, right? Something that simply is and always will be and always has been. It has this sort of permanent, never-beginning, never-ending thing to it, aeon. 
And so really to ask, well, does, does aeon zoe, eternal life, does it last forever? It would be kind of like asking, how fast is the color blue? Right? It's a confusion of categories. Uh, it, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense. The Bible talks about eternal life as something that exists in a different realm than the created realm that we live in. That's, so, and we were born into this realm, so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. So another way we could sort of summarize these, what we've just read here in these, these verses about eternal life, what John and Jesus is saying to us is that it is an experience, not a concept, right? Because he, he's experienced it. It's happened. We've tasted it and touched it. Aeon Zoe, eternal life is something we have seen, we have heard, we felt it with our hands. It's not just some abstract idea. And number two, eternal life does not have a beginning or an end, which means it is happening now, right now. It is always now. And this, number three, this is what Jesus came to reveal. So we could say very simply, eternal life is an experience happening now that Jesus came to reveal. Now, what makes this Zoe life different from the other kind of life, psyche? The first distinction we want to make is that psyche is not necessarily evil, but it is temporary. Remember, it said that Jesus would lay down his life. He would lay down his psyche. It's temporary. In John's writings, psyche is always spoken of as something that can be given up or taken back. So when Jesus lays down his life, he lays down his psyche, not his zoe, and your psyche is the thing that you get simply by being born into this world. You and I have a psyche right now. We are experiencing it and living in it, right? This is it. Uh, it. When you become alive, you enter the realm of psyche life. And when you die, you exit the realm of psyche life. Um, it exists in time and space. It's at a particular place. Uh, it's the thing that's always moving. It's always changing. Psyche is all the stuff that happens in your life. Our psyche is composed of uh, everything in your, in, in your relationships, all of your achievements, all of your failures, your accomplishments, your body, your health, your longings, your desires and hopes and dreams, all those things. And psyche, by its very nature, is constantly changing. It's always changing. Everything in your life that happens to you or that you do is part of the psyche life. When somebody says, I have a great life, what they're saying, what they're referring to the psyche, what they mean by that is, is I have a great life. I have a great marriage. I got great kids. I got a great job. Everything's great. I'm healthy. I'm feeling good. My psyche is fantastic, right? And when somebody says, I hate my life, they're referring to their psyche life to the things happening to them in life. The job isn't going well. The relationships aren't going well. The kids are crazy. I, I'm not doing well. My health isn't good, right? That's what life is about. It begins and it ends, and by nature, it changes constantly. And that's one trait that I really want us to hang on to there. It changes constantly. So Jesus is saying, beware of the seduction and the distraction of that kind of life. It, it's seductive. It grabs our focus because we're living in the midst of it, right? And Jesus says, instead, I want to show you Zoe life, a life you experience now that has no relationship to the ups and downs of the stock market. It has no relationship to whether you're in good health or bad health. There's no relationship to whether or not somebody says that they hate you and can't forgive you. 
Zoe life has no relationship to that. It's fundamentally part of a different realm. And it is the life that you must discover. In fact, if you're going to be able to enjoy at all your psyche life, you have to discover the Zoe. Otherwise, the psyche is absolutely terrifying without the Zoe. And Jesus insists that these two ways of life, this is important too, they're not sequential. They're, in other words, like, it's not like you start with psyche here on earth, and then someday in the sweet by and by, you get to the Zoe. Jesus says, no, 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 psyche and Zoe are concurrently operating at the same time. But see, the thing is, most of us are asleep to the Zoe. Our eyes are just focused on psyche life, right? We only see the psyche so much that most of our desires, I would even say probably 90% of our prayers are preoccupied with the psyche life as if it's what matters most. Let's look at a few examples of this. I think that'll help us really nail down what this means. Consider the waves on an ocean. On the surface of the ocean, the surface of the sea, the waves are constantly moving and changing, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're a slave to the elements. If the wind is big, they're going to have big waves. Sometimes there'll be huge waves. Sometimes there'll be tsunamis, uh, devastating. They can be terrifying. Uh, sometimes they'll be incredibly serene, almost peaceful. If they're in the middle, you can have fun surfing them, right? But, you know, too big, too little, they're always changing. And when the tsunami is here, when, when the waves are high and the, those valleys are really low in the waves and you're down there and all you can see is waves all around you, this is when you lose your job. This is when you get divorced. This is when someone says, I can't forgive you for what you did. This is what happens when you get sick. This is what happens when things that you wish could be just a certain way just aren't that way. That's when the waves are bad. Other days, the waves are fine. The waves are really good. They're, everything's fine and dandy. Your relationships are great. The kids are wonderful. The job's going well. You're doing awesome. Your bank account and your belly are full. Everything's happy. You got nothing to worry about. And if you don't like the waves when they're rough, well, don't worry about it because just wait a little while and they'll get better, right? The tide will change and things will get better. And if you really like it when the waves are calm, well, just wait for it because it'll get worse. That's the psyche. That's the psyche kind of life. That's the surface of the ocean. And Jesus comes along and says, I know you think that there's only one kind of life, but I'm here to tell you that I want to reveal to you that there is something else, and that is called the Zoe. And if you get your eyes off of the rough and the tumble and the waves and the sea, and you dive down deep into the ocean, it will hold you like a womb. And it is not a slave to the elements. It could be World War III up on the surface. But down in the womb, you find no chaos. Only peace, stable, serene, protected. Let's think of another way we, to help us see the difference. Um, a couple weeks ago, family and I went to the beach together. And, and we were all excited. And our first day, clouds all these clouds. It was just like this, this overcast day, and the kids were all like, meh, 
great, you know, no, we're supposed to be at the beach and, and it's raining and we're driving up to the little place we're going to stay and it's raining on us. And then we look out on the horizon, sure enough, there comes the sun peeking through. And it just reminded me, the sun's always there, right? The clouds look like they're here, but that sun is, is, is always right there behind the clouds. Uh, and, and so the clouds come and go. The clouds weren't there yesterday. Yesterday it was sunny, but the weather, by its very nature, changes. It ebbs and flows, and, and sometimes the clouds are really dangerous. Sometimes they're pretty, and we can just sit back, you know, and read a book inside while the clouds and it's raining. But sometimes they're huge thunderclouds, and sometimes it breaks out in tornadoes and, and hurricanes and gets really dangerous. Sometimes the clouds are up there, just little thin, wispy sort of things up in the sky. Sometimes they disappear entirely. What is guaranteed is that it will never stay looking that way. They will not stay that way, you know, unless you live like in Ohio, where I've heard it's always cloudy. <laughs> and if you don't like the clouds, just wait a little while. They'll go away. And if you're tired of the blue skies, just wait a little while. The clouds will come back. That's the nature of the weather. And what's fascinating is the clouds come and go, the weather come and go. But, but above it all, above those clouds is a context. It's a container. The thing that holds the clouds is the sky. There's a sky up there, and the sky does not change. The sky, in fact, doesn't even have any limits or boundaries, right? And just gradually, you won't know when, but eventually you'll find yourself up in space and because it, it just keeps going. Literally, we have a phrase called the sky is the limit, meaning there is no limit, right? That's the sky. No borders, no beginning or end. And this is the relationship between the psyche and the zoe. The psyche by nature is, is going to change. It's guaranteed. That's the deal. Someone very important said, in this life, you will have trouble. And that was the guarantee from Jesus, right? In this psyche, things are going to be hard, confusing. But I want you to know that above it all, around it all, between it all, is this thing called Zoe. The sky that is never moving. It's perfectly stable. It's boundless. It's endless, indestructible. Zoe. So Jesus came to reveal Zoe life. There's one last illustration I want to use because this is uh, going to be really important. Have you ever seen a painting on the wall of a sunrise? It might be a really fine painting, you know, by like Van Gogh or Monet or the greatest of all of them, Bob Ross. <laughs> right? I know nothing about art, but he's the ultimate to me. And you might walk up to this painting. You might walk up and see this in a gallery and, and it moves you. And you're like, whew, there is something about that painting. The way the colors just like blend and bleed into one another and the, the artist is like captured just that ethereal power of the sun to just come in and break through and scatter the remnants of night. And it can move you in a, in a powerful way. Now imagine you go up to this painting and you take it off the wall. And you go outside at midnight to walk through the woods and you hold up this painting to light your way. How successful are you going to be? Right? Of course. Only a fool would think that that painting is a light source. Right? Even though it was really beautiful. It, it was meant to be enjoyed, in fact, in its context. It has, it has a good, good use. But only a complete fool would, would mistake a painting of a sun for an actual light source. A tiny firefly could generate more light than that beautiful painting held up in the middle of the woods at midnight. 
This is the picture of the psyche life. It's beautiful. It's meant to be enjoyed. Have fun. But it is not its nature to provide light or security. That is zoe. Zoe is the sunrise itself. The actual six trillion gigawatts of solar power flying through the atmosphere, right? If you're looking for light, that is the zoe. And now, this seems really simple, but this is the fundamental distinction that we fail to make, and we do this over and over and over again in our life, and we become convinced that this painting is going to give me light. It's going to bring me satisfaction and joy, unending. And if I can just keep everything, all, you know, everything, all the plates spinning just right, this painting will provide me with joy and security And then we end up going, I can't seem to figure out why it's not lighting the way I need to light. Why am I always disappointed? That failure to distinguish what is light and truth from what is not is the cause of so much suffering in our life. And Jesus keeps saying, don't get caught up. Don't get distracted. Don't don't try and make the psyche do what it's not meant to do. Right? It's not by its nature. Its nature is to constantly change, to sometimes be enjoyed, but to also disappoint, to ultimately die. And yes, its nature is is to have fun and be beautiful and experienced in its moments, but it ends. And, And if you want something that doesn't change, that never ends, this is where you find it, in the Zoe. In John's letter, he goes on to say this, that which you have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. There's that John language, that love language. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this, why? So that our joy may be complete. John says, this is why we're writing this, to make our joy complete. By the way, he's quoting almost exactly words of Jesus that he says in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, I tell you this, that your joy may be complete. And the word complete here just means fulfilled. It means just, just fulfilled in every way. Uh, another way to say it is that joy that is so complete, there's not a single thing lacking. There's nothing lacking in it. It's total fullness. So this is the very nature of Zoe life. It's full. It's immovable, immutable, unending joy. And this is the reason John says he writes his letter. So, another way we could, we could paraphrase and summarize everything in these first four verses, it would say something like this. We want you to know that we have experienced the kind of life that Jesus said was possible. He showed us this indestructible life that has always been there. It's, it's been hidden, but now we realize it's always been there. And we want you to share in that life and experience the fullness of joy that it brings. Now, just real quickly, in the couple minutes I have left, I want to look at the last few verses in chapter 1. And we'll finish up chapter 1 so Miss Debbie can kick off chapter 2 with us next week. But I want us to see how John brings this introduction full circle here, this announcement of eternal life. And he does it in kind of a surprising, bringing up something very surprising, but it turns out to be very, very practical next step. Here we go. In verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you, that God is light. Okay, he's kind of switching metaphors here. He started off the letter by bound, this bounding proclamation that God, you know, in Jesus we find life, 
And now he uses the phrase, God is light. God is light. He's not just the painting. He is the star itself. He is the sun, right? For John, light is a fundamental aspect of God's character. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And sometimes in the Bible, different writers will use light and darkness in certain ways. They'll be bringing out things, you know, like um, light, you know, represents like holiness or goodness, and, and darkness will be like evil or something like that. John, uh, in, this, in this passage, he uses light and darkness to talk about the distinction between truth reality and, and lies or delusion. It's really interesting. So he says, in God, in, in God, God is light. In Him, there's no darkness at all. This is a vivid picture of the nature of Zoe life. It's a life character, characterized by the, the idea of ultimate reality, divine reality, ultimate reality. It's unmarred by lies and confusion and bondage. Now, we're going to come back in, in coming weeks to this theme of light, because John talks about that metaphor a lot. In verse 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not live according to the truth. We're deluding ourselves, in other words. We're, we're, we're kidding ourselves. We're going through a, maybe a bunch of religious motions. Uh, we're acting like we're a very spiritual person, but there's actually no real fellowship with God. That's what he's saying. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's ultimate reality, truth, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, that's interesting. Why is John suddenly bringing up sin? That seems to come out of left field here. In verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The truth is that light is not in Why is he bringing up sin? Because this is the number one thing in the universe that keeps us blind to ultimate reality. This veils our eyes. It keeps us from experiencing that aeon zoe, the eternal life. So he finishes this flourish of, of joy and life that he's announcing to the church with this next verse that we're going to read. And it's one of the most practical steps that we can take to experience life and complete joy. Verse 9. Let's see. Am I there? Yes, yes. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want to experience Zoe life, the indestructible kind of joy and reality that lies behind the dark clouds, that lies beneath the crashing waves that appear on the surface, it starts with acknowledging reality. That's what light is referring to in these verses. Truth. Reality. It's the kind of clarity and genuineness that doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't lie to ourselves about the things we've done wrong, the mistakes we've made. And it begins with confession and repentance. Confession and repentance don't sound like super fun activities, right? It's like, oh, yay, it's confession and repentance time. But confession and repentance are the, the, the spring cleaning that is necessary to live with a fresh new perspective 
that's free of self-delusion. It's free of the lies and the guilt and the shame that want to hide in every corner. Confession is a vital part of the Zoe life. And John doesn't shy away from uh, universal sin, the reality of sin. But in our confession, is, that's where we find profound joy and freedom. When we humbly acknowledge our sins before God, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus' sacrifice, this is the beautiful part, His sacrifice means that we don't have to approach God in fear and loathing, but we can approach Him in humility and in the knowledge of how much He already loves us. We can embrace His forgiveness where we, that's where we receive His divine mercy, and we experience the fullness of joy, that our joy may be complete. That's where we experience it, and it comes from being reconciled to Him. And, and listen, you can go to all the, the, the therapy that money can buy, and I'm a big proponent of therapy. I think it's very, very important for a lot of people. Therapy is good, but what that should lead us to, what it should lead us to is, is that place of ultimate reality, it should help us to arrive at reality. What is the truth behind the veil, right? It is through confession and repentance where your heart is truly set free from guilt and shame and where you become empowered to live in that Zoe life. The question is, do we trust Jesus enough to begin tasting the Zoe today? And I'm talking to people who haven't really walked with God before, as well as longtime Christians. Are we tasting the Zoe that is there for us? Do you trust the idea that His promises, the promises of Jesus, are not just a beautiful idea, but they are real? That this Zoe is actually real and it exists for us? And that as captivating as the psyche life is, as much as we want to obsess over it, Zoe is better. Do we believe that? And no matter what the stock market's doing, no matter what your health is doing, no matter what your kids or your spouse or your hormones or your chemicals are doing, that this Zoe is a place that you can go anytime Anytime you need to be free from the waves and the storms and the clouds, this is a place Jesus came to reveal. Have you trusted, not just in his words, but in Jesus' being, so that you too can begin to taste and see and experience and know this kind of life, aeon zoe, eternal life, not just later, but here and now. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word of life, your word of light and hope and love, this bounding, thrilling, transformative uh, word of joy that's spoken through this letter. Lord, help guard our hearts so that 
so that we are a place of, of truth, a place of safety, of honesty and vulnerability and humility. Lord, may we be free of self-delusion, self-righteousness, free of fear and anxiety of the wind and the waves and the storm clouds. That's just the surface of reality. Help us to see the ultimate reality, Lord God, of Zoe life that is just behind. And Lord, we begin, as your word says to begin, with confession. Because we don't want anything hidden from you. We don't want to lie to ourselves. We sure don't want to try to lie to you as if that were possible. We, want, we don't want to hide anything. Illuminate us, Lord God. We want to live and to walk in that ultimate, eternal life that you have revealed, that you've revealed is right there for the taking, if we'll just put our trust in you, Lord God. And, and for those, Lord God, my brothers and sisters here today who are hurting who are fearful, who are anxious, who are depressed. Oh, Lord, you love them so much. May you open our eyes and just flood our souls with ultimate reality. Lord, that our joy may be complete and it may be enduring. In the strong healing name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, would you stand to your feet this morning as our prayer partners are coming down? If there's anything at all you need prayer about, our prayer partners would love to pray with you. They'd love to stand with you. And if you'd like to say yes to Jesus today for the first time, if you've never really taken that step before, they would love to lead you in that next right step to just, just to, to pray and unburden yourself. And it's no condemnation. Jesus comes with love. He comes with love and forgiveness and a clean slate. And it's a beautiful thing. And today can be the, the, the best day that's ever happened to you. We thank you so much for being here today. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and I bless you in the name of Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.